We say awesome things, but the people should know about it. People should know how awesome we are. People should know how funny and talented and amazing we are. Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Matt Fox from the Boston University School of Public Health, and I am joined today by my friend and co-host Haley Bannock from the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Thanks, Matt. Once again, we're back for our series of episodes on the chapters of modern epidemiology, and we are getting today into chapter 15, Precision and Study Size. To get us started off, I am going to ask you a series of rapid-fire questions for which I all I need is a short answer, okay? Some of them are even yes or no, and all I need is a yes or a no, okay? Okay, but as a disclaimer, I'm sorry if anyone thinks I'm stupid after answering these questions. <laughs> That's, I hope I do you, okay. I, I, I promise you they'll think I'm stupider for asking these questions. What is your favorite misinterpretation of a p-value? That it is the probability that your answer is the truth. Do you believe that disease causation is deterministic or random? Obviously, it's not completely random, but at some point, is there randomness or is it completely deterministic? There is some type of random component to it. Mm, interesting. Do you believe that studies which report on the entire population of interest should still report some assessment of random error? Yes. Okay. Have you ever p-hacked? I would say I have not p-hacked in the sense because I really want to get a p-value less than 0.05. I've I've towed the line in terms of do I include these covariates? Do I not include these covariates? What am I presenting here? So I would say I've I've danced around it, Me but too. not done the the you know explicit I need to be 0.044 result. Fair enough. Should we all stop using null hypothesis significance testing? Yes. Have you ever tested a hypothesis in which you compared two or more exposures? And you tested a hypothesis that was different from the hypothesis that the effect is null. So that's a confusing question, right? Because in my research, I don't ever set out to explore exposure outcome relationships if I truly believe the relationship is null, right? There, I don't. Sure. I don't know who would do that because it doesn't make sense. But well, no, that does make sense, right? I mean, if there is a concern about something and you want to know that you, you don't believe there's an effect and you want to you okay, yeah, do a enough. study to test that? So in a, yes, that's true. So in my world where I'm looking at, let's say, a harmful exposure leading, or what I think is a harmful exposure, I've justified this to somebody to give me money for a grant to fund this study to look at the relationship with some outcome. Do I believe that's null? No, I don't believe that's null, right? And that so is different from though, are the tests you're using testing against the null hypothesis? Right, right. So that's where I, I was getting confused with your question. So okay. the answer to the original question is we assume that the null hypothesis is true in our testing. Okay. Uh, but I think part of why I'm getting confused in answering that question is that that's not the situation we are often in in real life. Sure. Have you ever used a P-curve? I have not. But I, in my notes for our episode today, I wanted to ask you why we don't use them more. Okay. I have an answer. Okay. Uh, all right. Which team are you on? Frequentist or Bayesian? Uh, I I am on team frequentist, but I truly admire team Bayesian. Okay. Everything about team Bayesian makes sense to me, but I happen to be on team frequentist. Okay. P 
P-values or confidence intervals? Which team? Confidence interval. Okay. Uh, type 1 or type 2 error? Which team are you on? Type 1. All right. Bert or Ernie? Which team are you on? Ernie. Okay. And last question. What is the most interesting word you've ever had to have your spell checker learn? Uh, I, can I can I say this because it's for sure diarrhea. I cannot spell that word. It's so hard to spell. Is the H before the A? Wait, I spell it so poorly that even autocorrect cannot pick up on the word diarrhea. So that that would be the real answer. Wait, but your spell checker didn't already know the word? No, because you have to spell it within some bounds of reason for it to pick up on it. Oh, 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 oh! So you're telling me what is the what is the most interesting word that you're you had to use spell checker for? I was asking yes. what what is the most interesting word that doesn't exist in your spell checker's dictionary that you had to teach your spell checker? Oh, bannock, obviously. Oh, it doesn't. Is recognize that the most Bannock's. interesting one? I actually no. I, there's probably others, but but that's the one that certainly I've registered this version of word in my name. Okay. Can't you somehow in the back end, Microsoft, <laughs> pick up on the fact that whoever's name is attached should be in the dictionary? I, I, I just think it should be possible. That's a really good point. All yeah. right. We are talking this episode about precision and study side. As I said, I, I, I like this chapter a lot because it gets into some really fun stuff. And I want to start by going back to the question. one of the questions that I just asked you. And I, I bring it up because it's a, it's a debate that I have with my students all the time towards the beginning of my class, just because I think it's a, it's a fun way to get into things. So I asked you the question, do you believe that disease causation is deterministic or, or random? And obviously, I don't mean completely random. I just mean that at some point there, even if with, we could understand all the laws of the universe, we could never completely predict every single case of disease because at some point there is just some randomness left over. And you said random, whereas I think the world is deterministic. So why do, you, why do you think it's random? I think that, so I subscribe fully to the theories, I guess you would call them, of, of Rothman's causal pies and these multi-causality. And for any outcome, there's going to be in theory, an infinite number of causal pies. Mm -hmm. And the random component that I think about in my head is which of the, the slices, which of the components for any given causal mechanism are found. I think there's randomness associated with that process. I don't think that it's deterministic because I, I think that each pie that is completed, there's a random component to how that, that pie was assembled. What about you? Why do you think it's deterministic? Well, uh, no, I'm going to ask you more questions because oh. I, 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 that's interesting to me. But it seems to me like what you're saying is there is is randomness uh, in how you get to the, the exposures that make up the pie, but mm -hmm. that the pie itself is completely determined, that it isn't, it, you know, it, we, we could predict with 100% certainty if we knew all of the components of the pie who would get disease and who wouldn't based on whether or not they had completed the pieces of the pie. If you were all knowing and you exactly. knew all of the potential which, mechanisms. Which I am and which I do. Yes, of course. Then, okay, so yeah. So I agree with, with that, but I see the randomness and I, maybe that's different than the question you asked, but I do see the random component of the process in the uh, which components are there, not 
the components to the outcome. But don't you think that that at some point is really just our inability to understand why people, you know, choose the exposures that they do, or in many cases don't choose, but are exposed to things uh, in their lives that make up the components of the of the causal mechanisms. Yes, I, I suppose, but I do. I still think there's a, a component of randomness for some of the exposures that you end up with. Mm. So you do think there's randomness. I do. That's what I mean. I, I do think there's randomness in the exposure to exposure side of things. Yeah, but I you, and so I I think that that is just our. And this is the point that the book makes is, in some sense, it really makes no difference because, you know, the randomness is is simply, you know, our putting our stamp on our ignorance of the mechanism. Even, and so there could, there could be a component of that that is truly random, but we, we put into that random category, category everything that we can't explain. And so therefore, because we understand so little, it's as good as, as being random to us. But I, I guess I, I don't buy into that. I, I would say that the reason why you know there is what you call randomness to to which exposures we get is just because we don't understand the forces of the universe and why people do the things that we do. But ultimately, if we could truly understand everything, we could predict every single case of disease. How is that different than what the book says? Or you think you're agreeing with the book? I, I, I'm agreeing with the book that it doesn't matter. Okay, we, yeah. assume, we ascribe randomness to be all the things we don't understand plus any true randomness. Right. So I guess I I agree with the fact that because we don't understand everything, it's all lumped together. And and so then the chapter starts to get into this idea of well, I would say it is mainly focused on the idea of how do we deal with this, you know, randomness that is in the universe, whether it be truly random or just the the variation that we can't explain, some of which is randomness that you know in our studies is related to sampling and you know some of which is probably related to random random processes and so thinking about that the first question that always occurs to me when we get to this part of the of the book is so much of of the way we think about random error is set up as you know sampling variation or or sampling error random error that we describe in our p values is, is supposedly related to you know sampling variation but how often in epidemiologic studies do we ever do any sampling? You could say if we're doing a randomized trial, then at least we're you know we're sort of randomly allocating the exposure. But in observational studies, we're not randomly allocating the exposure, and we're not randomly sampling people from populations. So how does that metaphor work? So two things, two comments on that. I find for understanding those sampling concepts, the where it really does apply is with surveillance and surveys, right? When you have a sampling frame and you are drawing from a, a predefined population. So I find that that's when we those concepts really get applied in the real world. And second thing is you think about that and I think about it because we are both researchers interested in bias. We are both researchers interested in what else could be contributing to sources of error beyond randomness. And I think that you and I have a particular perspective. We think about this more than the average folks because our interest is in understanding sources of bias, sources of error, separate from the random error. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that you come to it 
with that in mind. And so that's why you think about this a lot. Well, I think you're probably right about that. But I guess what I'm sort of asking is, do you think of the, in the same way that I think some people think of observational studies by analogy, like a randomized trial where we just didn't randomize and therefore my statistics, you know, I can sort of apply them in the same way. And obviously I, I don't subscribe to that theory. But in the same way, do you think of your studies as a sample from the population that you're interested in that wasn't a random sample, but we're sort of going to try and act like or or we're going to make a metaphor to as if it were a random sample from a population? I guess that would be the ideal. But do you actually think of it that way? Because I don't. No, I don't think of it in that way. So I don't think of it in that way. But then the consequences of that are, I suppose, that none of the testing and and none of the assumptions, not none, but many of the assumptions of things like confidence intervals, et cetera, I suppose wouldn't apply. And I I, I don't subscribe to that. I, I use confidence intervals in my work, et cetera. So there seems to be a logical disconnect between I don't believe I'm taking a true random sample of the population I'm interested in, but I'm still going to go ahead and use these confidence intervals as if I did. Yeah. And that's a problem. I, I, I think there are a lot of people who have thought very you know, deeply about this and, and have good explanations and they could they can come on to the show if they want to. But I, that, that one's always kind of troubled me a bit. And I've never really been able to explain that one to, you know, to people as, in terms of what we're doing as, as well as I would like to be able to. And I, I think that also gets to the other question I asked you, which was, uh, you know, if you have a population in which you've included every single person in the population of interest, so not everyone in the world, but everyone in the population of interest, why do we need any assessment of random error? Because we have everybody in the population that we want to draw inferences to. And the book says, you know, even in those cases, we still think of ourselves as by analogy, taking a, a sample and we want, maybe we want to, you know, because we want to think about generalizing to other populations. But, you know, that that part of it has always sort of been very interesting to me. I don't understand necessarily why it matters if it doesn't impact the actual work that I'm going to do. Uh, fair enough. But the, the, the question is whether it should impact the work that you're going to do. And I, I don't have a, an answer to that question. Probably the answer is no. You know, it just strikes me as something we should be a little bit better at being able to explain. Let's leave that there. And I would say that the, you know, the chapter essentially is getting us into the different ways in which we think about random error. So, you know, the the chapter starts off with a sentence that is probably not the way that I normally think about things, which is they say, we use the term accuracy to describe an estimate of an epidemiologic measure that is close to the estimate. And then they go into, there are two types of error, systematic and random. I, I don't normally think of, of the term accuracy much at all, but but I can see that they are using it here to summarize the two different sources of you know, essentially the ways that we can get things wrong. We can get it wrong for systematic reasons and we can get it wrong for random reasons. And this chapter is all about the random error reasons we get it wrong. Uh, And the converse of that, which is statistical precision. Do you, is that the way that you typically would think about uh, issues of, of random error in terms of, you know, the ways we get things wrong by chance, or do you think of it more in terms of uh, measures of precision? 
I think of it more in terms of precision. I do because I, I, I find that that has a more meaningful impact on the work that I'm doing, how precise is the estimate or estimated confidence interval, let's say, um, rather than thinking through that random component because, you know, as I just said, I, I find it harder con- to conceptualize that that random side of things. And so when you when you think about precision, what what does that mean to you? What are you thinking of when you think of precision? Because I, I, I have to admit, I'm not sure that we're all necessarily always talking about the same thing. A precise estimate is the opposite of a estimate that has a lot of variance in it. And so, so, so a precise estimate is one in which it is not imprecise? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yes. Because that sounded to me like what you said. So how would you define precision? What would well, be your definition of precision? So I would define precision as being how precisely I've measured what I said I've measured. I'm not allowed to define something by using the word no, and the definition. Big, big X. That's like saying, uh, or my definition was precision is the lack of imprecision. <laughs> I, I think those both those two definitions are both great. I think that, you know, yours yours is right. I mean, the more precise we get, the less random error we have. I think a lot of us think of this in terms of confidence intervals. So like how much confidence do we have in a result, which of course is is actually not the right way to to actually interpret a confidence interval. You just said a minute ago about, about confidence intervals and you said something like, well, that's not actually how they are uh, interpreted. So Matt, to put you on the spot a little bit, tell us how you would interpret a confidence interval. So the estimate is a risk ratio of 2.5 and your confidence interval goes from 1.5 to 3.5. And am I, am I explaining this to a student or who am I explaining this to? Let's start with explaining it to a student. And am I explaining it correctly or am I explaining the way that I would sort of use that information or both? So that's that's an interesting point. I would ask you, if you wouldn't mind, to do it both ways. Think of a confidence interval as a range of values in which the, if we're talking about a 95% confidence interval, in which the the p-value for the hypothesis that is for any value in between is above uh, 5%. So it's, and you know, you hear people say it's a, it's a range of values that have some level of consistency uh, uh, with the data, a range of hypotheses that have some level of consistency with the data. But that's not all, all that great because if you think about that in terms of p-values, the p-value is going to get higher the closer you get to the point estimate. But, you know, so, or I could, you know, you could give the, the precise definition of what a 95% confidence interval is, infinite repetitions, a confidence interval derived from a valid test will over unlimited repetitions of the study contain the true parameter with the value no less than its you know confidence limits. But I don't, I don't know that those are particularly helpful for a, a student. I think the, the p-value definition is probably a little bit easier for students to grasp. But I think in terms of how I'm going to use that information, which I think is ultimately what what matters is I this is where I, I while I, you know, I may have trouble defining precision. I think about confidence intervals in terms of precision. So how wide is that interval in order to give me a sense of how precisely have I measured what I am setting out to measure in randomized trials? I think I would give that confidence interval sort of more of a bit more credence than I would in an, in an observational study, because at least the, you know, the sort of underlying conditions are more often met. In observational studies, I really use it as just sort of how wide is that interval? I'm, I'm certainly not interested in whether or not 
the null hypothesis is in there. I'm worried, you know, is this a, an interval that contains every value from 0.03 to 1,000? Or is this something that is pretty precise, in which case, in the absence of systematic error, I would be reasonably confident as to roughly the range of values that are you know, consistent with the data that I'm, I'm, I'm working with. I have several follow-up questions on that. So the connection between p-values and confidence intervals, I don't think is discussed enough in teaching. And, you know, sometimes confidence intervals are sold as an improvement upon using a, p a dichotomous p-value. Mm -hmm. So can you explain for us what is the relationship between p-values and confidence intervals? Uh, sure. So the, the, the limits, the confidence limits on a, let's say on a 95% confidence interval, the confidence limits are the hypotheses for which the p-value, if you were to calculate it, would be 0.05. And so for people who really want to do null hypothesis significance testing, which as you and I both agree, we're not fans of, by looking to see if the, the null value is in your interval, as you said before, the confidence interval is the range of values for which the hypothesis would have a p-value greater than 0.05. So if the null value is in there, then you know that the null hypothesis has a p-value greater than 0.05. I'm not in any way suggesting anybody should be doing that. I'm just saying that that because that relationship exists, you would certainly know that if the if the null value is contained in your interval, it must have a p-value greater than 0.05. And therefore, if the null value is not in your interval, the null must have a p-value less than 0.05. So let me ask you two rapid fire questions then in response to that, because you made me suffer through rapid fire questions earlier. That, that, that's my game. So does a p-value tell you whether or not a study result is meaningful? No. Does a confidence interval tell you whether or not a study result is meaningful? No. Explain that second one a little bit. Neither p-values nor confidence intervals are of any value in terms of the specific, you know, the, the specific numbers that they include if you violate the key assumptions that go into them. So, and this is something that I think that the chapter does a really nice talking job of talking about. So they talk about the fact that a, a low p-value could mean that there is your, your data are incompatible with the, the hypothesis being tested. It could also mean there's a problem with your study, by which we typically mean that there is some sort of systematic error that is driving your p-value to be low, or you've used the wrong statistical model or you know whatever assumptions that you've you violated because confidence intervals are are built along the same math that the p values are you don't get out of that problem so if you have a highly biased study with a, a very narrow confidence interval you are going to be if you if you subscribe to confidence intervals telling you about confidence you're going to be very confident in the wrong answer and so the confidence interval or the p-value don't in and of themselves tell you whether or not something's important. In addition to that, of course, there's a question that I think you were asking earlier, which is about the essentially about the clinical significance. Just because you have a low p-value does not mean that there is any important difference. Even if all the assumptions of the, the test are met, you know, you could get a very low p-value for a very, very tiny difference between two things that ultimately doesn't actually have any importance.
So if you were able to present a, a range of p-values, and this gets to, I think, what I thought was interesting in the chapter, which was about how you uh, presenting a p-value function, I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever seen that used in real life? I, I've seen it used a couple of times, but it's it's exceedingly rare. So we, so should we explain what a what a p-value function is? Yes, go for it. So so when we talked about confidence intervals, we said that I, I said that the confidence interval is the range of values for which p-value testing that particular hypothesis would be above 0.05. But I could also calculate the actual p-value for all of those hypotheses inside the interval and all the ones outside the, the interval. So I asked you in the beginning, have you ever tested a hypothesis that was different from the null hypothesis? And I think we agreed in the end, you said no, but you could, right? You could test the hypothesis that the difference between your exposed and unexposed groups is a relative risk of two or a relative risk of four or 0.05 or 0.07 or 0.2, whatever you want. We just always focus on the null of one, at least for relative measures one. And so a p-value function is is essentially sketching out the graph of the p-value for every hypothesis between negative uh, between zero and, in, and infinity for a relative measure. And it's a it's a function that is increasing that gets to one at the point estimate and gets to 0.05 at the 95% confidence limits, and then is decreasing towards zero as you move out from the limits. And that allows you to see the compatibility of your data with every hypothesis, which I think is a, a really nice way to display your data. I, I fully agree. And I don't know why we don't use them more. I, okay, I, so I, 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 I think, think it's the, a really intuitive, I really subscribe to a picture is worth a thousand words. And I think it's a very clear depiction of the range of values much better than, than obviously a, a dichotomous p-value or even the confidence interval. Yeah, so I my belief is the reason why we don't use p you know these p curves more is twofold. Number one is I suspect lots and lots of people have no idea what they are. I've never heard of one or seen one. But even amongst those who do know what they are, I think the reason why people don't use them is it's going to take up a, a fair bit of space in in any kind of a publication without probably as much benefit as we 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 think because you can you can sketch a p value a p function sorry a p function in your or p curve in your mind as long as you know where the point estimate is and the and the confidence limits are and you have a an idea in your mind of what these curves look like and so to me like the key the the, the real important idea of, of these these p curves is that you understand in your mind what this looks like every time you see a a confidence interval. You're you're recognizing that the the p values are getting bigger and bigger the closer you get to the point estimate, and you know I think that where where the p curves do have value is when you're trying to compare two confidence intervals because then it becomes really sort of easy to see the way these functions overlap in ways that I think is a little bit harder to see when you look at just two confidence intervals. Yeah, I I, I think it reminded me as I read the chapter that neither of us are fans of null hypothesis significance testing, but the p-value in and of itself is not evil. There, There is some utility to it, and that can be represented in these curves. 
I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I, p values are certainly in and of themselves not evil. It's a, it's a it's a number uh, that you know does give you some information. But I my I, I think my problem with p values is, um, you know, the, they they work well in you know perfect randomized trials. When you move outside of randomized trials, um, now you're in a world where you you almost certainly violated uh, some of the key assumptions that go into that p-value, and therefore, you know, treating that p-value like it, it, it gives you a lot of information in that context seems to me to be setting yourself up for for failure. And I think the the chapter does this really really good job of saying, look. You should interpret these any of these measures of of random error outside of the perfect randomized trial as minimum estimates of random error. I mean, a minimum minimum because you know that you violated some of the key assumptions. You, you there's no way to to interpret them the way they were probably you know ideally designed. Yeah, that's interesting. That that's that's your I guess main objection to them. My my main objection to them is, is mostly how they're used in terms of greater than or less than 0.05. Sure. You know, in the the book calls it a, a degradation degradation of information into a dichotomy is counterproductive. And dichotomania. I, yeah. I think that's that's such a nice explanation of how we go to enormous lengths to collect this these rich data sources that has every possible covariate measured in you know all these different ways and it all comes down to whether or not you're greater than or less than this little cut point and how counterproductive as the book says that is to our understanding and how we move science forward i think oh i couldn't i could not agree with you more and and so we were talking specifically about about p values and and not about null hypothesis significance testing which i i'm you know, you and I are both very against, although, although even there, I would say, you know, null hypothesis significance testing does have its place. It's just, I don't see many opportunities for it having a place in what we do. But but as a, you know, as a concept, it's not, you know, inherently the, the worst thing I ever heard of. I just think it doesn't work in our field very well. But but to me, so the the, the problem then with the p-value becomes, as you say, you're, you're, you're getting this this information about your data but if we know we violated some of the the key assumptions that go into it, then if we're getting some information about the the variability in our data this way, then it seems to me turning it into a confidence interval, you know, again without without ascribing any any magical meaning to the limits, but just looking at it as as a measure of how much variability there is in my data, how much you know precision I actually have, uh, is a much much more useful way to think about it rather than separating that information from the point estimate and just looking at the p-value. So to me, the, the confidence interval, even, even though it, it comes from the same you know, math, math, even though it has all the same inherent limitations, I think you can use it in a way that is much more productive in terms of what we're trying to do in epidemiology, which is estimate effects and try to understand you know, how compatible our data is with different hypotheses. Agreed. Agreed completely. And it also lends itself to aggregating and meta-analyses and summarizing the literature, which I think is another really important aspect of our field. Each individual study might give you a specific result, but when you aggregate them, you begin to see the different widths of the confidence intervals and you know what that can help you understand about the 
quote, true relationship between the exposure and outcome you're interested in. I, I could not agree more. So I want to ask you a, a, another question about a big topic in the chapter. And this is something that I find to be a continual annoyance in my life. And that would be... Is it me? No, no, of course not. Of course not. Um, Though if it was you, I wouldn't tell you on the podcast. That's fair. But it's definitely not you. That topic is power calculations. I want to poke my eyeballs out when I have to write a grant and I work so hard to come up with novel questions, innovative methods. You know, you you work to write this rationale for why this science is so important. And reviewers, you know, flip through the first nine pages and they get to page 10 to see, is this person powered to do this analysis using secondary data? So I, I guess I have a lot of questions for you on the topic. But the first is, I would like you to help me understand what is a power calculation and why are we continually asked to do them? So are are you specifically asking about power calculations or sample size calculations? So I work primarily with uh, already collected secondary data sources. And so I mostly have a fixed sample size. So I focus more on power calculations, but the the you know either one i guess would be would be similar types of issues so you can define whichever one you want yeah well so, so i mean a sample size calculation is is essentially taking uh various assumptions about what we think we're going to see in our our data and what kinds of of effect sizes we want to be able to detect again detect that means we're in a, a world of, of hypothesis testing, which we don't want to be in. So, but if I'm I'm forced to be in, which I I am forced to be in when I'm I'm doing grant writing, um, you know, then what what kind of sample size do I need? Given if you know if those assumptions turn out to be correct, the power calculation would be the reverse. I have, you know, this sample size and distributed, you know between my exposed and unexposed groups, how much power do I have to be able to detect an effect of, say, you know, 1.5? Typically, if we are designing a prospective study in which I'm going to, you know, do a randomized trial, you want a sample size calculation because, number one, we're going to invest money in this. And number two, we are potentially putting people at risk if it's a a randomized trial. And so we want to know that the study is at least going to be able to have enough power to robustly answer the question. So that seems to me justified, even if it's, even if it's, uh, you know, often educated, educated guesswork that's going into it. And so, you know, it may or may not turn out to be true, but it seems to me a reasonable exercise. When you're in the situation where the data already exists, you know, then the, I, I suppose, then the need for a power calculation is probably much more about not whether or not it's worth putting people at risk because we're not putting anyone at risk. They've already, the, the data already exists. It's about, do I want to spend my money to fund you to answer a question that you may get a, you know, a very imprecise answer to? And so there, I, again, I still think it has some value in, in, in writing a, you know, when you're writing a, a grant to get funding, I think it's reasonable for a funder to want to know that. If, however, you're publishing your study 
and then somebody asks you for a power calculation, that to me makes zero sense because then you've already done the study. You have what you have. Uh, you either, you know, again, if you care about significance testing, which you and I don't, you either found a significant result or you didn't, it, it, you know, and the study size is what it is. It doesn't make any sense at that point to calculate power. I agree with you on that last point completely, that it makes no sense in the context of going out and publishing your study to to do a power calculation. In your answer for me about calculating power for a grant application with secondary data, you said something like, it's reasonable to for a funder to ask you about the imprecision you will get in your uh, study result or something yep. along those lines. Yep. And so I don't understand that answer because what does the power tell you about precision? So so power, and I, I realize I didn't probably define it. I mean, so when we're talking about uh, the setup for doing a sample size or power calculation, we're talking about type one and type two errors. So, you know, the probability of uh, you know, false positive, detecting an effect when there isn't an effect. That's your your alpha, which we said at 0.05, and then your false negative probability, your probability of missing an effect when there really is one. Again, only only relevant in the context of, of hypothesis testing. And so power is about your, your type two error. It's, it's, do you have enough a sample size that is going to allow you to detect an effect if one really exists. And it's not just about sample size, obviously it's about portion of the population that's gonna get the outcome or you know, whatever your outcome is that you have enough events. I, what I was saying was your funder wants to know that your sample size and its distribution is big enough to be able to detect an effect if there really is one. But as we've been saying, you and I don't care about the hypothesis testing aspect to it. So to me, it's much more about, am I gonna have a confidence interval that is reasonably precise around the point estimate, which a power calculation doesn't actually tell you because you could have a, um, a confidence interval that is, is quite wide, but is still, let's say, statistically significant. You have imprecision, even though you have statistical significance. So Ken Rothman's written a paper in which he talks about basing your study size off of estimates of precision, width of the confidence interval, rather than a hypothesis testing approach where you're focused on power and type one and type two errors, which I think, you know, makes a lot of sense. I do think it makes a lot of sense. And I understand resources are fixed. You can only fund a certain number of studies and, and they want to make sure that, that they're not going to be funding a study that can't answer the question it sets out to answer. The problem that I have is that from a practical perspective, there aren't always reasonable power calculations for all of the methods that we are using. So for as an example, for this latest grant, I talked about using a marginal structural model and there's no power calculation that you can do for a marginal structural model for the best of my understanding. If there's a listener out there that wants to correct me, please go for it. But I was left with, do I reduce all of this to some simplified assumptions that I, I don't believe at all, just so I can say that we have... 80% or 90% power or whatever? Or do I try to justify my answer in some other way? And I found that very frustrating. Yeah. So I don't know that anyone has ever worked out the sample size formulas for a marginal structural model or not, but it seems to me that is 
uh, under some fixed conditions or some assumptions, something somebody could do. And so the question is, is it worthwhile, even if somebody did it, to apply something that is got so many assumptions in it as to sort of feel we're living in a, in a fantasy world where it's, it's just we're just guessing. And I would suspect it's probably not worth it. It's probably better to just do the, the simple calculation and increase your sample size a bit to account for that. But just acknowledge, you know, this is sort of doing our best to get a reasonable estimate. We think we'll be in the ballpark. I think that's, I mean, that's okay. I hope it's okay because that's basically what I did. I wrote something. I'll fund you. Yeah. Oh, oh good. Thanks. The Bank of Matt. I wrote something like there is no known power calculations for marginal structural models. And I actually had a few references that, that talked about that. I then said, but here's a power calculation for a related kind of model-ish. Yeah. But it, it's it's a frustrating process for you and I to sit here talking, you know, with such ease that, yeah, null hypothesis significance testing is is doesn't contribute much, but it still <coughs> dominates in a lot of our scientific thinking. And that's frustrating. I, I agree. And like and as I said, I mean I, I actually think there is value in going through the exercise, even though it's guesswork. I wish it wasn't based so much on hypothesis testing. So that's why I like the precision-based approach. But just because we don't, you and I don't want to exist in a world of, of in which we're hypothesis testing, to me, th- that shouldn't be the excuse that says, well, therefore, anything goes, you know, we don't have to even think about precision or study size, right? We, we still want precise estimates. And therefore, I, I still think we need to go through some kind of exercise that gives us some level of confidence, not, not a massive amount of confidence, but some level of confidence that we have thought through the issues that go into precision estimates, such that if I'm going to fund your study, or you know somebody's going to fund my study, that there is some thought that goes into it, and I'm I'm okay with that part of it. I I think that that is valuable, even if it's not the this is the answer, because we can never get the the perfect right answer, because it's 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 always some level of of educated guesswork. That's fair. That seems reasonable. I just doesn't seem to be room for that qualitative qualifying within the sphere of grant applications. And that would suggest we have you know more work to do in, in educating reviewers about the what the value of those procedures is. Yeah, I agree with that completely. All right. Well, I, I think we have run out of time. I, as I say, I could keep talking about this for another hour or 10, but we'll have to pick it up on, a, on another episode. But we do want to thank everyone for listening to us today and and remind you that for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I would love to hear that you went out and became a member because you listened to this program and you thought, boy, I really want to spend more time with Haley and Matt. And so I'm going to go to this uh, annual meeting. Remember that membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting. That'll be in June. It also, a membership also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. And also, as always, we want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, uh, we think you'll really love Ellie and, and Lucy's podcast, which gets into a lot of the same issues. Finally, a reminder that the views expressed on this podcast are those of Haley and I's and any guests we might have. They are not the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. That's it. That is all we can tell you about precision and sample size. Hope we see you back here for our next episode. Bye.